0: Well, last week we started by talking about the reality that we love to hear good testimonies, don't we? And I, I want to start this morning by just saying there's nothing better than meeting a new child of God and, and seeing them bubbling over in, in everything in life. They're just giving glory to God. They're on fire. They, they know that the freshness, the sweetness of having their sins forgiven, they're in that that, that perfect zone of connection with God that many of us just seem to have been fallen back from. And they have, again, this, this overwhelming sense of closeness with God. They're bold, aren't they? they? They'll just go out there and they'll lay it on the line. I saw Jesus. I, I came to faith in Christ the other day. I, I want you to know about this Jesus. But you know what? I think many times that boldness doesn't necessarily help our testimony. I I look at when I came to faith in Christ, I I didn't come from a church background. And again, the only time I remember going to church before I was saved really was when I was probably around 10 years old and my mom remarried. So I was an usher. So I I don't remember going into church much at all. I, I had no connection, but God took a hold of me and saved me. But as I told that story in the early couple years probably of, of knowing the Lord and walking in this closeness, I actually offended my mother time and time and time again. Because part of my testimony was that we had grown up with you know, everything physically we needed, but I never went to church. And if you know my story... After the first divorce, or after my mom's divorce and first marriage, she actually raised myself and my younger brother on her own in the late 60s in Guelph. She worked two jobs to pay the bills and didn't go back to the Parry Sound area to live with mom and dad up there, grandma and grandpa. She looked after us herself. And so she took it very personally that I was never taken to church as if I didn't provide everything that my son needed. Does that make sense? A mom saying, I did everything I can, and you're saying, I didn't love you enough, I didn't care for you, I didn't take you to church. So while I was exuberant in my relationship and my sharing of Christ, my words were actually quite unloving at times. My thoughts were always to give praise to Jesus Christ and look what's happened in my life, but they were often taken as judgmental. They were not necessarily always gracious. And so I hurt people. It definitely wasn't winsome, even though I was on fire for God. Now God can and does use newborn babes as a testimony to bring others to saving faith in Christ. But as I look at people I've come to know over the years, what I see more than not is that God uses well-seasoned lives, families, individuals who are saturated in grace, who know what they've been saved from, but are are not up and down to the heights and the peaks, and they're learning and struggling to walk with the Lord. And it's out of that that the real-life issues, as I deal with them, people will see and say, "I I need to know who this Jesus is that's leading him. Now, when we come to Saul's conversion this morning, it's much the same issue. When he was saved, this must have just rocked the Jewish leadership in Damascus. Here was one of the brightest young leaders and teachers of the law from Jerusalem. Somebody who they trusted. Somebody who they knew was zealous to stamp out this new little Jesus movement. Because they were teaching all these blasphemies, supposedly, about God. And he was coming up to Damascus and he was going to help us. They knew his reputation before he got there. And they knew that he had left Jerusalem with these open warrants in his hand to find and persecute any Christians. But here he was, only a couple days out of leaving Jerusalem, somewhere in in the desert, He comes face to face with Christ. And now, as he's coming into the city, instead of of arguing and and persecuting the church, he is actually now brazen and, and standing in the synagogue preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, as we saw verses 21 and 22 last week, everyone was bewildered. And the more he preached, the more confounded they were. What happened? This is a great teacher that, that we've been waiting for, uh, somebody who we trust and now he's come and he's preaching extensively from the scriptures and he's preaching convincingly. This is the Messiah. You now from our human perspective, who better would you want in the church to be a new believer? Imagine somebody with the, the intellect of, of a D.A. Carson coming into this congregation and saying, I am now a believer in Christ. You know, this must have been just a, an amazing thing for the early church to see God do that. Who else could God use in his power to be able to reach the very people that are causing the problems and the persecution for the early church? Who better to debate the teachers of the law than Saul, someone who they knew? Someone who they probably would have received. Someone who they, he had studied under. Someone with a razor-sharp mind like Paul and debating skills. What a testimony! What boldness and zeal he had! And what, what an ability to argue and to, to deal with scriptures and put it all together. And what training! Amazing! Amazing! And yet, for all of Saul's strengths, we're going to see that he is not ready to serve. God still had to make him fit for what he was going to do, and that is be the apostle to the nations. Now, the first and most important step that we're going to see in the preparation of Saul is spending time with God getting to know god now saul had a great intellectual understanding of god but that was about it at this moment and we're going to see this preparation between verses 22 and 23. now yeah you're right i said between verses 22 and 23 so take a pencil and just put an arrow in your bible there because sandwiched in between these two verses we have to put into context what paul himself Saul later calls Paul, right? What Paul himself says in Galatians 1, 15 through 18. Let's turn to Galatians 1 for a second. Galatians 1. But when he who had sent me apart before I was born, set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. Here it is. But I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. So between the end of verse 22 and the start of verse 23, we we have what Saul himself writes in Galatians is a three-year time period. If this doesn't sound familiar, the Arabian desert, think of the Sinai. Think of the wilderness. This is the place where Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. And having received the Ten Commandments, this is the place where Israel, that that nation who has just come into a, a new covenant relationship with God, experiences for the first time Those blessed relate that the blessings that come with that relationship. This is where Israel learned to depend upon God for his daily provision, and where God, on, on a daily basis, revealed his glory to them in a special way. Now, we always think of the wilderness as equating it with the sinfulness of Israel. And that's right, but this is also the place where they see and feel and experience the covenantal faithfulness of God time and time and time again. God cares for them. He, God leads them. So in a very real way, in, in the history of Israel, the time in the desert, they're wandering is considered like a honeymoon this they have just been betrothed to the lord of glory and and he's leading them through the wilderness this is a very intimate time for the people of god so as we look at that it, it seems to be as luke is writing this for us there seems to be an inference that in the same way that Moses goes out into the desert and receives the law of God, so likewise now Saul goes out into the desert, the same desert, the same area, and learns about grace. Law and grace. Here's Saul, the, one of the, the greatest teachers, the young men of his day. But for all his understanding, it needed to be tempered with the love and unmerited grace that is Christ on the cross he had an an unlimited almost understanding of all of the Old Testament and and it was bound by, by the old law but he needed to understand what it meant personally in a right relationship with God what does it mean to know the forgiveness of sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and this was his time in the wilderness this was a time of spiritual formation for Saul it's often been said that the, 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 the biggest distance, the greatest distance, is the 18 inches between our mind and our heart. Between understanding and all of the knowledge that we can gain in this world and how that knowledge actually, by grace, changes who we are. It, it molds our heart. It changes our will. It makes us submissive to the will of God it makes us pliable in the hands of God so that we have a humble spirit so all of the head knowledge in the world is, not, is worth nothing unless it seeps down here and Saul's extraordinary understanding of the Word of God needed to be defined now by the love of God in the cross and that's what the desert wandering three years for him was about in truth To serve God well, we know simple head knowledge is not enough, right? To be truly useful, the gospel must filter down into our daily lives. It must reshape us. It it must take our will, our emotions, our intellect, our, our very being, so that all of our life exudes grace. And if Saul is going to be the great apostle to the nations, all of that understanding is going to be for naught unless to the Holy Spirit it is applied and he knows the love of Christ and is able to then preach the gospel out of that instead of simply a dry understanding of the Old Testament. Now, this head knowledge issue, we see it today. There are agencies like Nine Marks. I I love Nine Marks. Uh, as well as I know a lot of people in this church. But you know what, there's a whole generation of young men and women who hear the truth that Nine Marks is is saying, this is what the the church should be doing. This is how the church should be defining themselves. And and they grasp onto that and they start running. They, They committed to the principles, but the truth hasn't necessarily filtered down into their heart and change the way they live. So th- there's been a whole generation of young men and women who are committed to a truth, and yet, when they go back to their local churches, uh, they cause more problems than any help, even splits. Nine Marks itself even recognizes this bo- uh, problem. I don't know if you know, they put out a book a couple years ago, I think it was by Lehman, um, and it was, it's called Don't Be a Nine Marxist. Yeah, don't take these principles to heart and go back to your local church and start pounding them and say This is the only way to do it. This is what the Word of God does says and and that was certainly a temptation of Saul with all of this Understanding he had it would have been very easy to just keep pushing the truths if it doesn't bubble a bubble down into his life now, I think maybe even a greater challenge for us as a church today I say us is generic, us is our desperate failure in committing ourselves to a daily relationship of intimacy with Christ, a dependency on Him. If we truly desire to be used by God, we must know God. We must be walking intimately with Him, we must be saturated. Not only with Scripture, but with the Holy Spirit applying that to our lives. And here's the problem. The older I get, the more time I serve in different churches, the more I'm worried about the general lack of intimacy that we have with God. We're a generation that knows a lot about Scripture. I don't know if there's ever been a generation that pumps out as much literature about the Bible as we do today. And yet, we seem to be a generation... is unable to commit themselves to devos and to prayer daily I I was talking with a a young person not too long ago and I was challenging them to their walk with the Lord And, and I wanted to hold them accountable and I said well what do you want to commit to and they said well if I can commit myself to doing it twice a week I will be happy and I thought, twice a week? I, I know I struggle. And if I struggle, and I'm forced to, to, to study, to prepare my heart, to come up here and say, this is what the Word of God... If I struggle, I know all of us struggle. But twice a week is not going to make us apt in, in the hands of God. We are not going to be a sharp instrument to do his service I feel that should the Lord tarry we're going to be a generation that is going to be judged by a lot of head knowledge knowledge, knowledge. but very little heart relationship and I just worry for us as a church because all the head knowledge in the world will not mean anything when we get to glory now here's the reality having just been saved Saul is on fire for God, isn't he? But he's not ready for the responsibility, the task that God has set him apart for. He's going to be the apostle to, the, to the, not only the nations, but to the people of Israel, and very specifically to kings as well. So he's going to have this wonderful task. And we know that in 1 Timothy 3.6, he says what? He says, I want to warn you, Timothy, about putting new believers in positions of responsibility. So looking back at his own life, he says, you know what? It's wonderful, wonderful to have this effervescence, this bubbling over, this joy of a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we need people who are grounded in grace. And it's only those people that we need to be saying, we feel God is moving you now to take leadership in the church. Uh, We talk uh, at different levels in the church between the difference between competency and um, character. And, And you can have all the competency in the world, but if you don't have the character that goes alongside it, your service will be for naught. We are made fit for service only as we spend time with God. Now that doesn't mean that I have to go away for six months or a year and hole myself up in this holy huddle, but it does mean that I need to commit myself daily to walking with God, to submitting myself to the direction of the Holy Spirit. One of the great preachers of the 20th century, uh, Ogilvy, has said, the Lord will not use us unless he has made us ready. Unless he has made us ready. Now with the importance of the Sinai, and the wilderness to the history of Israel I can't imagine Saul not going out and just being in awe of seeing perhaps for the first time at least for the first time with the eyes of faith in Christ all of these places that are referred to and visiting them and 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 remembering God's mercy his grace of these different situations I can't imagine him not grasping the spiritual significance of his own time there. But again, this wasn't just a spiritual retreat. It would be wrong to think that his three years there, he just again hold himself up and that was it. We can say with some certainty that he continued to preach throughout the Arabian desert because we see in verses 23 to 25 what? We see that when he returned to Damascus after these three years, the Jews plotted to kill him. So it seems that while he's out in the Arabian desert there, Saul is continuing to preach. He's continuing to stir up enough conflict that according to his own words in 2 Corinthians 11, it's not just the, the Jews as a whole who want to get rid of him, but the king himself, Aretes, the king of Damascus, has said, that's enough. We've got to do something with this Saul and so he sets up guards at all of the entrances to the city. And they're waiting in ambush. And the intensity of, of the language here is, is that they are there specifically with one purpose. And, and they are on the watch for him. Now we're not told how. But at some point Saul does get into the city. And a couple of days later, uh, he's undetected. He, he becomes aware of a plot against him the scripture says he became aware of the plot now i want you to just take that phrase put it to the side and remember it's there because we're going to come back to that in a second saul became aware of the plot and because he came became aware he had to actually be lowered at night through a small window in the wall of the city which really is probably an apartment at the top of the wall with a, a slight uh, overhang and out of one of the windows he was let down in the night in a basket now if i was saul <laughs> a young man with all of his exuberance i might have been a little proud of myself i've come back and it hasn't taken very long and my preaching has stirred up a hornet's nest well praise the lord people have to be saved i have to speak what's on my heart Uh, so my faithfulness and my boldness could become a point of pride but here's the thing saul tells us in second corinthians 11 just the opposite he says if i'm going to boast in anything i'm going to boast in my weakness and very specifically in verse 33 of second corinthians 11 he says i was lowered in a basket in the night And we can imagine, he's probably hunkered down under some clothes or under some food. He's hiding, and he's fleeing for his life. It was a time of humbling for him. he, He associates it with great weakness. So here's Saul, with all of his training, with all of his understanding, having just come out of the wilderness... He's growing in his understanding of, of being able to connect Jesus Christ with all of the promises and all of the shadows of the Old Testament. And he's preaching boldly with an assurance that this is what Scripture says. And when he gets back to Damascus, he's ready. He's, you know I've been out in the wilderness. I, I'm now going to come in. I'm going to go to the synagogue. And I'm going to face the, the, the Jews head on. And I'm going to preach Christ. And what happens? He has to hightail it out of there you know what the phrase hightail it out means? In English, it, it comes from a deer. When it's scared, it actually lifts its tail and it runs as fast as it can. So he hightails it out there. He's scared for his life. How humiliating was that for him? With all of his knowledge and understanding, e- even if he has a, an understanding that he is in the right, that this is what the Word of God says, that this is all truth, he has to run for his life. And to make things worse, he runs off to Jerusalem and what happens there? The very same thing. He's only there two weeks and he's running for his life again. He has to flee to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus. The gospel is undoubtedly offensive and it was offensive to the Jews. But the bold preaching of Saul was a thorn in their side. He was a traitor to the Jewish faith and his in-your-face style of preaching was not winsome, even though he was on fire for God. A couple of years ago, I got to meet, spend an afternoon with a very, very well-known Reformed preacher. Someone who just lays it on the line. Doesn't care, no holes barred. Just says it as it is. And you know what? There are times when we like to hear that. And he'll, he'll look at you and, and shout, Sinner, repent. And there are, there are times when we say, This is what the word of God says, and, and I'm convicted by this. Preach it, brother. But you know what? It's often offensive, isn't it? And now, this person would say, He'd say, well, the gospel is offensive. And we must preach it plainly, no matter what the consequence. This is really life or death situation. Every time you give me an opportunity, it's life or death. Even if you're a Christian in this church this morning, you need to know your decision to follow Christ is life or death here and now. But you know what? When I was with him privately with four or five other pastors afterwards, his words lacked grace. At times, there was an overtone of judgment. And I just thought, man, that's not winsome. Yes, the gospel is offensive, but we do not have to be offensive in the gospel, in preaching it. Saul's brash, in-your-face boldness as a new believer would have undoubtedly lacked winsomeness it may have been a little pugnacious saying you know, this is what the lord god says and you know Ma, all of my training let's talk about this and very we know very specifically at times he disputed with the the teachers of the law he took them on head to head with bible knowledge and beyond that he he was effective there were people who came to saving faith in christ because of him So his ability to dispute the scriptures with the best of all of the Jewish teachers of the law of the day, with a self-assurance that that may have bordered on pride at times, made him a real threat. He was public enemy number one. (laughs) And the Jews, again, were going to get rid of him. God had great plans for Saul. And we know that he was highly qualified. He was going to be a great preacher and teacher. But God still needed to make him fit for service. There was a great need to be molded by grace. He was a great need to be humbled before the Lord, a need to be emptied. Now in Acts chapter 9 at this conversion story verse 16 is as he's out in the desert and he's blind and the Lord speaks to Ananias he goes he says you go out there and you find this one who's Saul and and Ananias says what Saul the one who persecutes the church and the Lord says yes go to him and here's verse 16 I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name this was just the beginning of a lifetime of experiences of suffering in weakness for christ to to know that it's a total dependence on christ no matter how much understanding you have if we are to be fit for service for god we must expect to be humbled we need to become accustomed, dare I even say, to being weak in our own strength and our own understanding. Because we know that God puts the treasure in clay jars. And he does so so that the power that is visible is of God and not of us. And the reality is that serving's not about us, is it? God doesn't need intellects. He doesn't need great people. He doesn't need fancy people. He doesn't need famous people. He just needs people who are saturated by grace and willing to do His will. And great things, mighty things will happen to the man or the woman of God who is willing to do that. Now, I'm sure that there are a few pastors or elders who are serving in churches who could probably say well you know what my experience in the church has been fairly easy not a lot of conflict but you know what you talk to the average pastor and it's been heartache N- not just worried about uh concerns and divorces and you know problems between family it, it, situations arise where they're at the center of a problem they've sinned there's trials and you know what with all of this comes self-examination i remember pastor warner said to me once that you know before he came to know you he really struggled in ministry and i i can tell you before i came here i'm only here because of all of the trials and the stresses that god put me through ministry for years and those have molded me to be who i am and he's brought me here to serve you with all the brokenness and the crying and the shame and all the things that have went on before me that I was guilty of, it's brought me to the place of being able to serve you. A couple years ago, we bought this wonderful coffee maker. You make espressos and lattes with it. And it's, it, it's a pretty good one. So you've you got the steamer on the side and everything else. But the problem is, unless you make the espresso just right, it's not going to work, right? So you have to grind it, and then you have to pat it down. And here's the thing. It has to be just the right consistency and texture. And then you put it in, and that water is expressed through. Our lives are like those coffee grounds. They, they need to be crumbled up. They, they need to be compressed. And then the Spirit needs to enter into that and to change us into who, what God wants us to be to be able to serve Him. It's only in our utter dependence upon God that we are made fit to serve God. The third aspect of Saul's preparation, and indeed ours, happens through the people of God. Now, Saul's left Damascus, he's left with his tail between his legs, and he heads off to Jerusalem, and he tries to meet the apostles. James and Peter. All the other ones are out in the countryside somewhere, but we know Peter and James are there. The action of this verb here, he's, he's tried. It, it indicates not just once, not just twice. He's tried several times to engage them, to meet with them. Perhaps even tried to go where he, he knows that they're going to be. He may see them in the distance and he tries to get close, but they don't trust him, so they scoot off. So every time he's tried to, to meet with them, he gets rebuffed until Barnabas, the son of encouragement, takes an interest in him and literally takes him by the hand or, or takes him by the, 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 the scruff of his, his robe and, and, and takes him and leads him to the apostles. And we can just imagine and picture Barnabas, can't you? I, I can see, here, here's a man of grace, a man who is willing to, to take at face value what you say you are. So amongst anyone in the church at that time, here is a man who was witty and willing to listen. He hears rumors that Saul of Tarsus is back. And he doesn't seem to be quite the man he was when he left. He may have followed him around a little bit. I'm sure he saw, probably saw him in the synagogue praying. And even he must have approached him to be able to know his testimony because he then relates the testimony to the other apostles. We can understand why the apostles are scared, can't we? They don't want to meet this guy. Here was a man who had no qualms about busting your door down, dragging you out, and putting you in prison. Here's the man who was standing near Stephen as he's dying, stoned to death, and jeering the crowd on. And even though he's been preaching the gospel for almost three years, it's been out in the wilderness. Any stories that may have come back have not been connected with him. So there's, there's no real connection to Saul as his conversion of having come to Christ. This could have been just a grand ruse, right? This could have been just Saul trying to infiltrate the inner circle to get to know where everyone is going to be, even perhaps to find that most propitious opportunity, a worship service where then all of a sudden the guards can come down upon them and set the trap. What's really important to notice in all this, though, two things. Number one, Saul felt the need to meet with the apostles and to be a part of the local church. I, I'm sure having left Damascus with his tail between his legs, he was stinging. He, he says himself, this was a time of humbling. And being with the apostles is a sign of encouragement. But he also realizes that if he's going to serve in Jerusalem at all, he needs to have the trust and he needs to have the approval of the church leaders. The second thing is that once Barnabas vouches for him, this is Saul's testimony, he's real, guys not only do they receive him but we we see that once the people find out that that there is going to be a plot or they want to go out and kill him it's who that that whisks them away it's the brothers and sisters in christ i found it notable that it's not the apostles it's the brothers in christ saul was from tarsus but he had probably lived in jerusalem perhaps even 15 years or more, because he's well ensconced into the intellectual group and have studied there for years. He knew many of these leaders personally. He probably hoped to have a very fruitful ministry amongst these very men that he used to study with, saying, let me tell you who is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And yet that's not what God had for him at this time. Who, who would have been better to have preached to these people? What a, what a wonderful testimony but that's not what God had. I remember when I was first saved, there were people who said, oh yeah, you came out of that that punk scene in Kitchener, Uh, go back and and let them know who you are. And I said, no, I can't go back there. (laughs) That is where I came from. I've, I've left that behind, but that's not God's calling anymore. And it's the same here. He will have opportunities in the future, but he still needed to be made fit for the ministry that's God calling him to. So here's the reality, for Saul to take the advice of the church leadership and leave with, with basically no arguing shows his respect for the church, for the leadership. Because here he is, he's, uh, he's well educated, and, and who are the apostles? A fisherman and a son of a carpenter. And he submits and says, no, I need to leave for the, for the care of the church. But we also see that churches care for him, that once they have brought him in as a brother in Christ, they said, this is dangerous now for you. We're going to move you out so that you, you don't have to become a martyr at this time. Although he was only there for two weeks, Galatians 1 tells us very specifically, he says, I, I spent time with Cephas. I spent time with Peter. And I spent time with Jesus' brother, James. James. What an encouraging time, a healing time that must have been to share the power and the grace of God that was at work in their lives, what God was doing in the city, what God was doing in the countryside, to sympathize with each other's uh, trials and sufferings, and perhaps even to find forgiveness for his role in Stephen's death. You know, we understand that the integrity of our spiritual walk with God cannot survive apart from the grace of God and apart from the people of God. Because we're called into a family into which there's a mutual accountability, mutual fellowship of service and admonishing and building up. So we can't survive in a healthy spiritual relationship without the family of God. And if that's the case, how much more do you think we are able to serve without that relationship? How can I serve in love, in humility, in grace, unless I am in a loving and caring relationship that is encouraging me, that is preparing me for the ministry that I believe God has. So a relationship with Jesus necessitates a relationship with the people of Jesus, that is the church. And here's the thing, if humility is a sure means that God is going to use to make us fit for ministry, than the local body of believers, you at at different ages, at different experiences, who are experiencing the the same emptying, the same experiences of being humble, of being made fit to serve, of ongoing wrestling with your sin, where better is there than for someone to go to find healing, to be prepared for ministry, to be encouraged in the word? In making us fit to serve, God will do everything necessary to do away with our own understanding, our own strength, in order to teach us that without Him, we can't do anything. It takes a family to comfort, to build, to train those who desire to serve God. And it takes time, a lifetime, to make us usable in the hands of God. Now, the church in Jerusalem must have just reveled in Saul's testimony. I can just imagine being at a Bible study. Tell us again, Saul. Tell us how you were blinded in the the desert, how God spoke to you, how God healed you, how you went out and you were preaching the gospel in the wilderness and you had to run for your life. Tell us again how God blessed you, how God saved you. And think of the Bible studies this guy could lead. (laughs) Nothing can compare to them. What a blessing he was. Unfortunately, being there meant that he was also a lightning rod for the wrath of all of the Jews, the Jewish council. His presence, while encouraging, while it helped to build up the church and give them confidence in in their walk with God, also brought with it anxiety, brought worry, it brought fear that the next person who knocks on this door or perhaps the door would just bust down and the Jewish leaders will, will be there. Especially the ones who are particularly offended by Saul having become a follower himself. That's why we read in verse 31, we see that after Saul fled the church, and that is a singular word there, it's not churches, it's church. So the church, that is the body of Christ that spread out through all of Judea and uh, um, Galilee and Samaria, experienced a time of great blessing. So the reality is, despite the different backgrounds, the Jewish believers, the Greek believers and the Samaritan believers all experienced harmony, peace and unity in Christ. It, It was a time when the church was being built up, it was being edified. A time that it it not only experienced spiritual depth, but spiritual number. It grew in in people who believed as well. As people were comforted by the Holy Spirit in a very personal way, and they lived their their lives in reverence and, and integrity, they were attractive testimonies. Their lives shone forth the grace of God, and people wanted to be part of it. They wanted to know what their hope was they were so filled with a sense of god's mercy that they were attractive in their faith, despite what was going on in the community it seems like a pretty strange way to end this story about saul this narrative about saul right to say that when saul left the church experienced great blessing You know what, the more I contemplate it, the more I've been meditating and thinking about it, the more I'm convinced that it's not just Saul's leaving per se that brings peace, but it is the sovereign work of God to bring the persecution to an end. You can't deny that Saul was a lightning rod, but I think if we look just a little bit deeper of what's going on in the context, another picture starts to emerge here. Because we know from the first century Jewish historian Josephus that in the year 36 and 37, the same time that we're talking about now, when Saul is running from Jerusalem and going back to Tarsus, there was a lot of political turmoil going on in the Middle East. In AD 39, a gentleman by the name of Vitalius became the governor, the new Roman governor of the area. that was instead of Pontius Pilate. Now you remember who Pontius Pilate was. He was the one who was at the, the trial and who signed the, the, the death certificate, the crucifixion. That's for Jesus. So pa- Pontius Pilate is gone, and now this new gentleman, Vitellius, comes in. And unlike Pontius Pilate, Vitellius wants he, order. He wants stability. He wants peace. So when he becomes the governor... He also gets rid of Caiaphas, who's the high priest. Who's Caiaphas? He was also one of the main people of the plot. He was the high priest who wanted Jesus dead. He, he replaced him with a couple different men over the next year. But the reality was, as Caiaphas as the high priest is gone, and then something else happened. The emperor of Rome, Tiberius, dies, and a man by the name of Caligula becomes emperor. And when Caligula becomes emperor, he he takes his good buddy, Herod Agrippa I, and he says, you're going to be king over Palestine. Now why is that important? Because according to Acts chapter 12, King Agrippa dies a very painful death by being stricken by the angel of the Lord. The short of the long is that The political landscape at this time was drastically changed. There are things going on that that are really hard to to imagine. And and the two main culprits who who are pushing this agenda uh, of anti-Christian, of of killing uh, all of the Christians, and, and specifically Christ himself, Pilate and Caiaphas, are no longer in places of authority. And very specifically, we're told that an angel of the Lord afflicted King Agrippa the first. So we see God's invisible hand writing and moving behind the scenes to bring about a situation of time and peace. Okay. You may ask, well, do we see God's invisible hand behind the, the little narrative about Saul having to flee Jerusalem? Well, yes, we do, because in Acts 22, verse 18, Saul is recounting his testimony, and he says, while I was praying in the synagogue, I fell into a trance, and the Lord told me to flee Jerusalem. So it wasn't simply that he accidentally overheard that there was a plot. The Lord God revealed to him in a revelation to get out of town. Well, what about the little narrative in Damascus? Can we see God's hand there? I I think we can. When we read the words, the plot became known to Saul, our first thoughts go to, well, well, somebody in the church overheard something or was a friend of a friend of a friend who heard that this was going to happen, and he goes back and tells Saul, and so Saul now escapes by being let down on a ladder through a window. But I can't help but take that phrase, became known to Saul, and I think of the story of Esther and Bigtha and Teresh, the two who plotted the King to kill King Ahasuerus. And the words it became known to Mordecai mean and indicate God is sovereignly working this out and explains it. So in the very book where the name of God doesn't even exist, God is behind the scenes moving all of these incidences so it's inexplicably God alone. And the same phrase is basically used here right now. It became known to Saul. I can't imagine. Yes, somebody may have overheard and told the apostles or the disciples, but God was behind it. It was God who had moved the people to be in the right place at the right time. So God had called Saul to be a chosen instrument of righteousness to the nations, but he needed time to be under the spiritual care, the the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. To be made fit for the service that was going to be called so here's the reality in in verses 31 is that rather than peace coming as a result of removing Saul peace comes at the same time as God sends Saul away to Tarsus and he's going to be there for 8 to 10 years before he's called out to, to go to Antioch to be the pastor and in that time he's going to serve the church in that time, he's going to become the apostle to the nations, And he's going to wrestle with, if I'm going to preach to the nations, Jesus Christ, what happens to the people of God, Israel? And that's going to be a formative of time in his thinking, in his theology, when he writes Romans 9 to 11. God is calling me to, the, to be an apostle to the nations. And, and as he is removing him, he is... God is bringing peace to the fledgling church, lifting the, the persecution so that it experiences blessing, but in the same time, he also makes a place for Saul to go to learn to prepare himself for the next stage of his life in ministry. So the invisible hand of God is sovereignly moving all things according to his wonderful purposes and counsel. He's raising up servants, servants, strengthening the body of Christ and adding to the church all according to his sovereign timing. And I want to encourage you this morning. If he has called you, if you truly know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is a purpose for your life. You are called not only to be a disciple, but to be a witness, to preach Christ, to live out Christ. And yes, it's going to be a challenge as you will live a life that will be continually humbled and broken before the Lord because he wants his glory to be seen in your life. But the reality is, as he is moving all things according to his sovereign counsel. He will raise you up and prepare you at just the right time for his glory. Our Heavenly Father.